Welcome to the Hannah Miller Show. And here she is, Hannah Miller. Outspokenly conservative and unashamedly Christian, this is Hannah Miller, and this is what happened this week. So, Usually when I'm doing my podcast, I try to wait all week before I record and I will record on Friday and my producer will produce it and it will go out on Saturday so that we have the latest, most up-to-date stories and information from the week. But due to some unforeseen circumstances and uh, my producer having to leave town suddenly, my recording had to be earlier in the week to um, make that accommodation. So just if there's other things that have happened later in the week, just know that uh, we'll we'll try to get to them if we can. You should also follow me on Instagram, uh, The Hannah Miller Show. I do try to, I don't do a whole lot on there, but I'm trying to increase that, especially in my stories, at, which usually will go over to my Facebook. So Hannah R. Miller on Facebook. Um, you can get both of those. So thank you all for hanging with us, and let's dive right into some of the stories that some of these happened a little bit last week, and then over the weekend, and then the beginning of this week, so there's still a lot to talk about. And the first thing that I want to talk about is the Olympics. Dun, dun, dun. So it seems there are still plenty of God-fearing Americans who have zero interest in supporting the propaganda machine of the brutal Chinese regime. Yahoo reported on the story saying NBC is facing a cataclysmic loss of audience for the 2022 Winter Olympics as viewership tanked for Friday's opening ceremony, averaging just 16 million. It is a record low for the opening ceremony. 20.1 million for 1988 in Calgary was the previous record and a whopping 43% below the 2018 games in South Korea that notched 28.3 million viewers, despite also dealing with a less-than-advantageous Asian time zone for American audiences. NBC also said that, or Yahoo also quoting NBC, said the 16 million is a total audience delivery, which includes all of its networks and streaming. So the television-only average audience was below 14 million for the day per the preliminary data released by the network. Now, obviously, as time goes on with the Olympics, there tends to be more interest. Uh, It rises a little bit, but not enough. It doesn't look like that it will rise enough to catch up with previous years. And from my observation, talking to folks and and reading things online, there are three reasons people aren't watching and none of them will come to as a surprise to you. One, China released COVID on the world and has and has since lied about literally everything plus the strict following of unscientific COVID protocols at the games is rather nauseating for many folks. There's a lot of folks who love the games, but they just can't stand seeing, first of all, like I said, the country that released this insanity on the world and that is following all of this unscientific COVID protocols and forcing it on people and the quarantines that they're forcing onto the athletes and other things that have just been atrocious. And people are just like, nope, I'm not interested. The second thing is the treatment of the Uyghur Muslims in China. A lot of people being aware of the persecution, the torture, the concentration camps that are going on that that are occurring in China and saying, nope, I have no interest in supporting a country that is doing these kinds of things. And then third, China overall being a communist country. One of the first days, opening ceremony, you saw a, I believe it was a Dutch reporter who was literally dragged off of this, you know, away by 
uh, by the CCP in China as he was reporting on the opening ceremony. Now, I don't speak his language. I don't know what he was saying. I don't know if he was speaking against the regime. I don't know if he was speaking against the COVID protocols. I don't know what he was saying. But obviously, the the idea of uh, free speech is not a thing there. And you see him in real time being, you know, an arm coming out around him that's got a red orange, a red band around it and him being drug away. And you see his partner on the other, you know, on the other split screen who's in the studio just sitting there stunned, wondering what's going on. And that was at the very beginning of all of this insanity. You've also got things coming out about the food for athletes from other countries being, you know, like peanuts. I mean, literally, they're giving them peanuts and a few pieces of chocolate. I mean, it's it's not healthy. The conditions are wretched. People, the athletes are cold. Uh, they're also, if they test positive for COVID, even if they don't have any symptoms, they're being totally isolated. They're being drugged out of their hotel rooms or, or out of the, the Olympic Village in the middle of the night at three o'clock, banging on their door, dragging them out and throwing them into isolation with almost no explanation, no telling them when they're going to get out of isolation. And it's been very difficult for a lot of these folks. And even, you know, I watched one video and a woman was having basically a mental health crisis. And she said, I just, the anxiety, she said, I'm crying uncontrollably all the time. I'm worried about myself, my peers, my coach, my, my teammates, they're worried about me. And she said, I just, I can't handle the isolation. I can't handle, and because she had been put into a COVID isolation room. And basically, in some, to sum up everything that she said, the isolation was so traumatic on her mentally and emotionally. And I just want to make a point here. And I, I pointed this out on my Facebook. And it's just, these athletes are elite athletes. They have to have some sort of experience and or training in the area of mental fortitude because they're athletes at this level. They have to have a certain level of mental toughness. And yet this woman is not able to withstand the isolation required of her from COVID. Now, what do you think that kind of isolation does to somebody who, in, in her case, she was actually physically well. She had no symptoms. What about somebody who is not well, who's physically exhausted, who's tired, who is ill, who gets isolated in the hospital, no contact with family, no contact with anybody that they know, or they get, they, they're told to isolate at home? How do you think that, what do you think that does to their mental health? If a if an Olympic athlete who has to have some level of mental fortitude and mental toughness can't handle it, what do you think it does for the average folks? It would be devastating. And one of the things that I hear most frequently from people who have been in, who have been in the hospital with COVID talk about how depressing the isolation is and how, di- how bad the anxiety is because of the isolation. So... We can just sit on that for a little bit. But anyway, that was for free. I wasn't planning to talk about that. So speaking of COVID, Israel National News asked the question this week, are Israeli hospitals really overloaded with unvaccinated COVID patients? According to, and I'm going to butcher this name as I always do these names, sorry guys. According to Professor Yaakov Jeris, director of Ishalov Hospital's coronavirus ward, the situation is completely opposite. Jeris said right now, 
Most of our severe cases are vaccinated. And Jarris told Channel 13 News, quote, they had at least three injections. Between 70 and 80 percent of the serious cases are vaccinated. So the vaccine has no significance regarding severe illness, which is why just 20 to 25 percent of our patients are unvaccinated, end quote. I want to make this clear to folks. I do not tell you these things because I want to say I told you so or because I want to scare people, or I want to minimize the impact of COVID. When I, when I talk about all of these things, look, this is a terrible virus that was unleashed by China and Anthony Fauci and, a ho- and, and some other guys that worked in concert with him, okay? I, I don't want to minimize any of that. They should go to jail. China should be punished by the entire world because of how badly they handled this. I want you to know the truth, and I want you to make an informed decision regarding your health and COVID. And you cannot make the best decision for yourself or your family if you don't know the full truth. So that's why I tell you these things. And it may feel like I'm just ragging on the vaccines and on COVID protocols all the time. But that's because none of these protocols and none of these vaccines work. They're not helping people stay healthy and they're not keeping people out of the hospital and they're not saving lives. And that's what I want to do. I want to keep people healthy. I want to keep them out of the hospital. I want to save lives. And so I want you to know the truth. All right. Got that off my chest. Uh, Further news on COVID. According to a study just published by Johns Hopkins, lockdowns decreased COVID-19 mortality by 0.2% in the U.S. and the U.K. For the U.S., that's 1,842 lives. Deaths from drug overdoses alone during lockdowns increased by 28.5%. From 78,056 deaths in the previous 12 months to 100,000 prior to COVID to 100,306 deaths from May 20th, May 2020 to April 2021. I'll do the math for you. That's 22,250 lives. Meanwhile, domestic violence incidents increased 8.1% and 9.7% of U.S. teachers said their students suffered learning loss, not to mention an increase in gun violence, human sex trafficking, and missed doctor's visits, just to name a few other things. All of these were side effects. Anyone with even the slightest understanding of social behavioral behavior knew were very likely. Look, I'm just a girl from Inman with an only average intelligence. But these were things even I understood would be the ramifications of lockdowns and isolation. As a matter of fact, I wrote about them and these negative side effects in the spring of 2020, right down to the increased rates of cancer due to missed cancer screenings. How did I correctly predict these things, but public health officials and the experts did not? It's certainly not because I'm highly intelligent. I suspect it has more to do with willful blindness induced by a power-drunken blackout on the part of bureaucrats and politicians. As my friend Julian Barker said, without government intervention, we would be in exactly the same place with COVID, but we would be in a much healthier place with our economy, mental health, education, and the list goes on and on. Just look around you. Are you, are you doing better? Are the people around you doing better? Then before we had all this government intervention that didn't, as this study shows, didn't do anything. What did these researchers find to be most effective on lowering COVID-19 mortality? 
voluntary behavioral changes due to honest, and I'll say the word unpoliticized, information. That's all most of us ever wanted. Honest information. So we could make the best decisions for our own help and our own families and the freedom to make those decisions. This is a quote from, I'm going I'm to directly quote the study so that you know that I'm, what I'm saying here is true. Quote, our study fails to demonstrate significant positive effects of mandated behavioral changes, lockdowns. Finally, allow us to broaden our perspective after presenting our meta-analysis that focuses on the following question. What does the evidence tell us about the effects of lockdowns or mortality? We provide a firm answer to this question. The evidence fails to confirm that lockdowns had a significant effect in reducing COVID-19 mortality. The effect is little to none. Lockdowns during the initial phase of the COVID-19 pandemic have had devastating effects. They've contributed to reducing economic activity, Raising, rising unemployment, reduced schooling, causing political unrest, contributing to domestic violence, and undermining liberal democracy. These costs to society must be compared to the benefits of lockdowns, which our meta-analysis has shown are marginal at best. And this is their final statement. Such a standard benefit cost calculation leads to a strong conclusion. Lockdowns should be rejected out of hand as a pandemic policy instrument. Everything that they just listed were things that people knew before this. We didn't have to have a meta-analysis afterward. People with common sense knew it was a bad thing to send a country, a people that already were in a mental health crisis, already in a mental health crisis. Strip them away from their families, strip them away from the things that make life worth living, like weddings and parties and prom and recitals and voice lessons and piano lessons and sports sporting events and competitions and all of those things that bring joy to our lives they just expected us to they just expected to be able to strip away and we could just perform like little robots going to our uh, you know what was the word that they used um oh i forget the essential workers to go into our essential jobs if we had if we were lucky enough to have an essential job and we're considered an essential worker. All right, so moving on. There was an article that was published at the Daily Wire this week, and it was so important because it talks about, the title of it was How the Federal Government Used Evangelical Leaders to Spread Propaganda to Churches. And this article is a little longer than some, but worthwhile. And I just, but I just want to say a couple of things about it. What was it? Because it calls names. I mean, this... This article, the names are called in here, and they're go, they go into an extensive background into uh, how this kind of all happened and how some of these evangelical leaders were caught into this trap and the relationships that were there that happened. But what was it about Collins's history? And you have to go read the story to kind of get every everything about it. But there was this scientist that's kind of been propped up or er, er, viewed as a Christian scientist that uh, uh, evangelical leaders brought before their congregations via their podcast, via articles, via whatever platform that they could and said, hey, because this guy calls himself a Christian, which I'm going to get into for in a second, we should trust what he has to say about COVID. And of course, he was just parroting 
all of the things that Anthony Fauci and the bureaucrats were saying regarding COVID-19 and the protocols and the lockdowns and all of that. So what was it about this guy, about Collins's history that caused, this is the question I wanted to, I wanted to know, that caused Rick Warren, Tim Keller, Russell Moore, Ed Stetzer, N.T. Wright, and David French to believe that Christians should blindly follow Collins's scientific advice. Because he is a guy who supports abortion, experimenting on aborted babies, mastectomies on 13-year-olds, and a host of other tragedies that she goes into in this article. So let me ask again, what was it about this man that these guys were like, hey, yeah, we should, we should definitely follow his science? And see, this was one of the issues that I had from the very beginning because I said, why... I mean, you know, I, I had more trust in our organizations then than I do now, but I still ask the question, you know, why would I just ought blindly follow the CDC who doesn't believe that a baby in the womb is a human being? Why would I blindly follow the FDA and, and the CDC and all of these bureaucrats who don't believe that a man is a man and a woman is a woman and who believe that children at the age of five should be able to pick their gender? I mean, just like, why, why? I mean, I'm not saying that they don't say that it's there may not be right. I'm just saying that I'm not going to blindly follow. And once I started asking questions, I realized that I shouldn't blindly follow. But all of these pastors and evangelical leaders encouraged their congregations and the people that listen to them to follow this guy and his scientific advice, knowing that this is his background. This is an excerpt from the article. He has not only defended experimentation on fetuses obtained by abortion, he has also directed record-level spending toward it. Among the priorities of the NIH has funded under Collins, because this guy was a part of the NIH, a University of Pittsburgh experiment that involved grafting infant scalps onto lab rats, as well as projects that relied on the harvested organs of aborted full-term babies. Some doctors have even charged Collins with giving money to research that required extracting kidneys, uteruses, and bladders from living infants. Now, I don't know if that last part is true. It's in the article. It's been accused of that. But, I mean, why not? I mean, if you're doing experiments on full-term babies, I mean, that's a baby. Uh, you know, why would you have a problem taking the kidneys or uterus or bladders Ureters, I'm sorry, ureters, not the uterus, ureters and bladder from, from living infants. I mean, what's the difference, really? Baby's baby. It's atrocious, and these guys should have known better. I don't want to get into it for too long, but I did want to bring that to our attention. And I think the overriding principle should be we should never be afraid to ask questions, and we should never be afraid to look at somebody's history to decide and determine if they're trustworthy on the topic that they're discussing with us now. Is this guy Collins uh, scientifically reliable for us as, as believers to follow him? Well, from what I just read, absolutely not. I don't trust him. So there's that for you. I encourage you to go read that article. Like I said, the title of it is How the Federal Government Used Evangelical Leaders to Spread COVID Propaganda to Churches. It's excellent. It's a little lengthy. But it's easy to read and a lot of good information packed into there with background and background histories and relationships and information that I just think are really important for us to know, especially if you're an evangelical leader. 
Hi, this is Bob of Bob Sloan Audio Productions. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Have you ever thought about doing a podcast yourself? Do you have a desire to communicate an idea, opinion, or even a hobby or interest you'd like to share with the world? And do you have the communication skill and dedication? If so, let's talk. Send an email and a short description of your idea to bob at bobsloan.com. That's bob at b-o-b-s-l-o-n-e dot com. Now let's get back to the podcast. All right, back from the break. I want to talk about the South Dakota ban on biological males from competing in female sports up to collegiate level. So Governor Christy Nome signed a bill into law on Thursday that bans biological males from competing for female sports teams in the state at the interscholastic, intercollegiate, intramural level, saying only female only female students based on their biological sex may participate in any team sport or athletic event as being for females, women, or girls. Section one of the bill titled an act to protect fairness in women's sports. So that happened. And and I don't, we could dive into this more, but that's just a little snippet from there. So that's from South Dakota. That's Christy Nome's bill. In contrast to this bill, though, from South Dakota, in light of the William Thomas, Leah Thomas controversy, and that's the gentleman who was really bad at swimming as a male. And so he decided that he's going to keep all of his genitalia. He's going to keep everything about himself. He's just going to change his name to Leah. And I think at some point he started taking some hormones in the last year, but it's only been in the last year, I think. And, um, and, and, and swim as a woman. And so the USA Swimming of the NCAA has updated its rules this week, but fell short of doing the right thing. USA Swimming announced that competitors in women's events must have a recorded low, have recorded low levels of testosterone for 36 months. The previous rule required only one year. Uh, Thomas began transitioning in May 2019, which means he will be barred from competing in the NCAA championships in March. So the elite athlete policy will be implemented by a decision-making panel comprised of three independent medical experts and eligibility criteria will consist of two things. One, evidence that the prior physical development of the athlete as a male, as mitigated by any medical intervention, does not give the athlete a competitive edge over the athlete's cisgender female competitors. And two, Evidence that the concentration of testosterone in the athlete's serum has been less than 5 uh, mole per liter as measured by liquid chromatography coupled with mass spectrometry, spectrometry sorry, continuously for a period of, of at least 36 months before the date of application. Trying to make all of these rules that will protect women but skirt around the truth that there are biological men and biological women will not be enough. And, as a matter of fact, they're problematic. So, Mount Sinai Hospital states that normal measurements from a testosterone test are male is 10 to 35 nanomoles per liter. And female, it's 0.5 to 2.4 nanomoles per liter, which means the policy regarding testosterone levels will still give transgender women or biological men a wiggle room of seven and a half 
times the value of the average elite female athlete and a figure that not a single healthy woman born with XX chromosomes, ovaries, and producing estrogen at puberty can reach. And regarding their first criteria, to say that the prior physical development of the athlete cannot give them a competitive edge is just ludicrous. Of course it will. Bruce Jenner, Caitlyn Jenner, whatever you want to call him, pointed out, quote, she was born as a biological boy. She was raised as a biological boy. Her cardiovascular system is bigger. Her respiratory system is bigger. Her hands are bigger. She can swim faster. Yeah, duh, because she's a dude. Many of the changes brought about by male puberty, such as changes to skeletal architecture, are permanent and unalterable by testosterone reduction later in life. Testosterone suppression will not, for example, make a person shorter or reduce a person's wingspan. And while hormone therapy will weaken a male body, it will not weaken it to female levels. Joanna Harper, a medical physicist, long-distance runner, and advisor to the International Olympic Committee, who is transgender, admits as much. Despite more than 15 years of hormone therapy, Harper says, I carry more muscle mass than a woman my size. Absolutely. Ambie Burfoot of Let's Run, an online um, website, news, journalism. They follow sports, particularly track and field and cross country and that kind of thing. They, she wrote, I believe it's the most difficult issue that sports has ever faced. It's the most complicated for sure. And the most emotional as well. Dealing with the most private subject, sex. Everyone's struggling for the best solution, but there's no easy answer in sight. Yeah, there is. Dudes are dudes and women are women. Wingspan doesn't matter. Height doesn't matter. Weight doesn't matter. Even testosterone levels don't matter. Does this person have XX or XY chromosomes? The answer to that question levels the playing field and all the other answers we need fall into place. Look, elite athletes are elite for a reason. There's a lot of hard work and sacrifice that goes into their elite status. But when it comes down to it, most elite athletes have some sort of genetic or physical advantage. And I would contend that if a person is born with XY chromosomes, but also, by some miracle, has high levels of functioning testosterone, I would have no problem with them competing against other women. Because that's the advantage they've been given. Michael Phelps became the most decorated swimmer in the world because he capitalized on his God-given wingspan. No matter how dedicated the average male, he will never be faster than Usain Bolt, who has a God-given 80-20 ratio of fast versus slow twitch muscle fibers in his legs, contrasting with the average male who has a 50-50 ratio. No matter how many lessons I take, nor how often I sing on my praise team, I will never have the vocal talent of my sister Miriam. God gave Secretariat a heart one and a half times the average horse, empowering him to run faster, harder, and further than any other thoroughbred to run the Triple Crown. My point is this. When we try to equivocate on this issue by making their criteria about gender identity, testosterone, wingspan, height, or any other attribute other than biological sex, we slowly begin to eliminate the exceptions that most often make elite athletes the top of their field. That's a disservice to those athletes and will eventually lead to them being excluded from competition. So the USA swimming rule isn't sufficient, and it's not because I'm being nitpicky. It's because, like most of our political fortitude today, it falls short of doing what's right. 
Thank you for listening to The Hannah Miller Show. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast. This podcast is produced by Bob Sloan Audio Productions. If you'd like to find out more about Hannah or to schedule her for a speaking event, go to her website, thehannahmillershow.com.